Welcome. I'm Melissa Durda, and this is Synergo's Cultivate the Soul podcast. Stories of purpose-driven philanthropy from around the world. Over this series, we explore together the intersection of contemplative practices, spirituality, philanthropy, and social impact. Join us as we dive into the personal journey of each guest and what they have discovered about the role of inner work on one's capacity to change the world. To learn more about each of our guests and view our full episode list, please visit synergos.org slash podcast. My name is Suzanne Keplinger. I'm the director of the Catalyst Initiative at the Minneapolis Foundation. I cultivate my soul by giving intention and energy to that which I wish to manifest. I create spaciousness every day so that I'm intentionally moving towards joy and gratitude throughout my day. Welcome. Today we are joined by Suzanne Keplinger. Suzanne has led the Catalyst Initiative since its inception at the George Family Foundation in 2014. Catalyst's purpose is to honor and foster culturally authentic self-care practices to advance health and well-being. This community-informed approach to addressing trauma and toxic stress was later spun off to the Minneapolis Foundation in 2018 to bring promising practices to scale. Suzanne previously served for 10 years as the executive director of the Minnesota Indian Women's Resource Center, leading the first research and community response in the country to addressing sex trafficking of American Indian women and girls. Suzanne is happiest when on a remote river or hiking trail. Suzanne's full bio is available on our podcast website. Suzanne, welcome to the Cultivate the Soul podcast. Today, we will be looking at who you are and how it connects to the work you do and its impact. Thank you, Melissa. It's such a joy to be with you today. I'd like to start by asking you to share a memory or a story from your life that was instrumental in shaping your views on what matters. What really matters to me came out of early exploration. As a child, I was part of a family that attended the Missouri Synod Lutheran Church, and I don't know if you know much about it, but they're very strict. And they teach you that God is mad at you all the time and that we are pitiful, weak creatures and our lives should be spent making amends for that. And that just didn't resonate with me. As I got into my early teens, I started to ask questions. And one of the questions I was asking was about my grandfather. We didn't know him. He died when my mom was quite young. And I learned that he was an indigenous man. I didn't know anything more about that. But it caused me to start asking questions about indigenous spirituality and begin to talk to the wisdom holders in Indian country. And that sense of being interconnected with a larger universe to understand that we actually all are sacred and we all have contributions, gifts that we participate in this universal interconnected sphere with meant so much more to me. And so I started to learn more about indigenous spirituality And over time, I've studied quite a few different approaches to spiritual growth and and religion. And I think that's a journey. It's been a journey for me. I I more recently am doing more exploration around Buddhist practices because they do have a lot of meaning to me. But it's it's a journey, right? We all continue to learn. It's definitely a journey. What wonderful different kinds of spiritual practices you're able to draw from, from your own experience and from your heritage. 
Would you say, has there been a moment in your life that's been particularly transformational for you? Or have you had an aha moment about what your purpose in life is? Mm, yes. And it's a twofold aha moment. There are two big ahas. And the first is I survived severe domestic violence when I was in my 30s. It was the kind of violence that to this day, <laughs> I still am amazed that I lived. Like, how did I live? How did I live when others did not? So many women are murdered by their intimate partners. You know, how did that happen? So that really was a pivotal moment for me to begin to question, there must be a deeper purpose for me in my life. I should be doing something more useful. A couple years after I successfully got out of that relationship, my mother passed away. And that was the deepest grief I had ever experienced. And it also caused me to spend, I spent a year grieving for my mother. And a lot of that time was spent traveling. I recognized that I was trying to move away from my grief when, in fact, I carried that grief with me all the time. But I kept moving, and I kept looking at different skies, and I kept looking at different vistas. And I spent a lot of time in the car feeling my mother's presence around me as I was driving across Canada. And it came to me one day in Saskatchewan as I was driving across the prairies that I needed to do something with my life that was useful. I knew that as, as a survivor of domestic violence, that I had a particular role to play in trying to end domestic violence and help other women get out. At that moment, I decided to go back to graduate school and get a graduate degree and start working in the nonprofit sector where I could feel like I was contributing more to people's healing and growth. Thank you for sharing that very personal and difficult experience with us. What a gift it is that you've turned your pain into helping others. So you mentioned that there have been several spiritual practices that have been important to you in your life. What would you say guides you today? I think it's a compilation of practices that I've been exposed to over the years. I first started really doing this inner work only about a dozen years ago or so and have tried a few different meditation styles, have tried some yoga and tai chi. I have a teacher that I work with quite regularly. I can't call myself a student because I'm not disciplined enough, but she is my teacher. And she teaches a Rinzai Zen meditation practice and a very beautiful and powerful 10-step warrior Tai Chi that has been very helpful to me. I still smudge and chant periodically, and I find great connection to the natural world. I love being near water and the forests. Beautiful. That sounds like a wonderful blend of different practices. Yeah. Some days, you know, you, you try to sit and it's just not working. So you just get up and do some Tai Chi instead, right? That's right. Or I also love a walk in nature anytime that clears my mind, body, and soul. Exactly. So you have been running the Catalyst Initiative for a number of years. Can you tell us what that is? Yes. Catalyst was begun by a very visionary family philanthropy, the George Family Foundation, in 2014. And they had previously been trying to address integrative health and healing on a systems level. Came out of Penny George's experience uh, with the healthcare system and really trying to recognize that Western-based medicine is really important and we need those therapies, but we have come to ignore those other practices that can help keep us out of the hospital in the first place. And the important role of healing that comes through spiritual guidance, that comes through aromatherapy, through meditation practices, like all these mind, body, spirit practices 
that we have a body of evidence that showed their efficacy are not part of our clinical models. And after some time of working on a systems level, I think they started to inquire, what does it look like if we start to work in the community to build integrative health in the community? And I had come out of serving 10 years as the executive director of the Minnesota Indian Women's Resource Center. We had seen a lot of trauma in that work, the work we did with sex trafficking victims, and, and started to develop organizational practices to address trauma historic and collective trauma in a culturally meaningful way. So when the George family offered me this opportunity to just lead this new innovative exploration, I jumped at it. And I started out, they gave me a great gift, which was a nine-month period of time to just ask people in community, what does integrative health and healing mean to you? What are the practices that have meaning to you, right? How do you heal? What's the language you use around this? Over and over again, I was told by people in communities where health disparities were highest and, coincidentally, where rates of trauma are significantly high, that they were not accessing clinical mental health. They weren't often going into their their doctor's office. They felt that they were traumatized people and they wanted access to trauma healing in their own ways within their own community. And they said, help us do that. So that informed the investment strategies for Catalyst, which was a a three-pronged approach to training, convenings, and seed grants to help people develop their own ways of healing. We invested in leadership. We invested in promising practices. We we took risks. I mean, Bill George uh, was very clear. You take calculated risks. You don't shy away from learning from what doesn't work. And that was another great gift that they gave me. And after three years, what showed up in community, particularly in East African communities, American Indian communities, and in African American communities, was incredibly brilliant strategies, powerful leadership, and a deep understanding of what they needed to do to heal the wounds of historic trauma in their own communities. And all they needed was the support and the connections, right? So we started to connect people, deepen the training, foster their organizational capacity to embed healing practices. It became a very robust initiative. The George Family Foundation thought it would be advantageous to spin it off into a community foundation where I would have a bigger platform and could raise additional dollars because you can't raise money through a family foundation, right? So in 2018, the initiative was spun off to the Minneapolis Foundation with operating support and instructions to go big or go home. (laughs) And since that time, there's just been amazing work happening in community. So I've stayed in relationship with many of my grantee partners learning from them, learning alongside of them, and seeing change on an individual, organizational, community, and now a systems level, which is very encouraging. So what we're really trying to do is shift social norms that are based in the community, that are led by the community, that are moving from reactive to proactive, from reactive to strategic. How are we helping people understand Living in your reptile brain is not really a good strategic leadership position. And how is that actually fostering chronic disease and community violence and the connections between all of those things? So Catalyst has been leading the way in this field of investing in trauma healing practices in community for the last almost eight years now. And I'm extremely proud of the work. Wow. That is so innovative. The fact that you went into communities and you asked them what they needed and what they would actually use and what is important to them. I'm really curious about what are some of these practices that they draw on that is not traditionally a part of the standard healthcare system? It looks different in different communities. 
I'm very intentional about not being proscriptive. There are some models that we've worked with that have been very well accepted and easily adapted. One is the Center for Mind-Body Medicine out of Washington, D.C. They have a really beautiful trauma healing portfolio. It's backed up by the evidence. They have really beautiful teachers, and we've worked a lot with their faculty. We really wanted to train the community leaders in that model. So we were, one of the first grants I was able to do was to the Minnesota Indian Women's Resource Center to support two Native elders in becoming the first Indigenous certified trainers in the Center for Mind-Body Medicine's model. But what those elders have done is they now bring their own practices in. They bring their own spiritual guidance in, and they talk about it in a way that the community can resonate with. That increases the opportunity for people to come back and learn more, to then practice those ways in their own homes and with their children. We also worked with a local imam, Imam Sharif Muhammad, and he went through the training and he did it with a group of community leaders and then asked them to say which one of these practices has meaning to you. But after learning all of that, he then went to the Quran to ensure that all of the teachings were in accordance with the teachings of the Quran. And then he began teaching those practices. Investing in the way that the people will use the teachings is most important, I think. The curanderismo in the Latino community, there's practices that are very closely aligned to Western-based yoga and meditation, but because they're taught in a way and in a language and in a cultural context that have meaning in the community, they're more acceptable, they're more utilized, and they're more sustainable that way. So different practices, I ask people to tell me what will work for you, not me coming in and saying, I'd like you to do this thing, which is a habit that philanthropy has. Yeah, that's so true. So often philanthropy comes in with solutions that they see for communities rather than asking those important questions that you're asking the communities. And I imagine that given the locally grounded connections to to faith and to spirituality, that you must have had greater outcomes in terms of health and trauma healing. Have you had a chance to look at what some of those outcomes are? Yes, and. There's a yes and there. I'll reference two outcomes that I'm particularly excited about. And one is the work that the imam has been leading to develop a Muslim chaplaincy program. So we know that spiritual care is very important in our healthcare systems, but the healthcare system right now is largely focused on Christian denominations. There are also Jewish chaplains, but there have been, I think in the state of Minnesota, we had one Muslim chaplain, and that was Imam Sharif, and maybe 12 or 20 nationally. So how are people of the Muslim faith accessing their spiritual care within the healthcare system? So we were able, with the support of the Bush Foundation, to invest in a program called the Muslim Chaplaincy Program. And they trained community leaders. Some were imams, many women. These are the leaders that the community looks to for guidance. And there are also people who are driving taxis and cleaning houses to make a living. They should be paid to be the spiritual guides that the community needs. So they are now embedding the Muslim chaplains within our healthcare system at several different hospitals and within mental health care systems, and there's a new opportunity to really start to place Muslim chaplains within the public safety departments. So I see that as a tremendous outcome. Another is the Irreducible Grace Foundation, which is an amazing group of young people. They're mostly black, brown, indigenous, and immigrant young people who have come out of their own trauma histories. I've been working side by side with them over the last seven and a half years to help them develop 
workshops that are fostering well-being, they're fostering healing, they're doing their own healing work. The organizational culture has pivoted as the leadership of the organization has recognized, oh, we have to do our work too. They are now in the school system. They've created, they pivoted during COVID and created video tools, animated tools for younger children. They have a workbook. They have materials that can be used in the classroom where they're actually teaching kids, oh, when I feel this, this little knot in my stomach, that's anxiety and here's what I can do about it. They're teaching them practices that will help them settle their central nervous system, be able to focus more, be able to study better, not get into fights, not react to bullying, not do the bullying. So there's huge benefits to bringing these practices into the school system and into the healthcare system. And just a comment about impact, we're right now doing the final catalyst evaluation. And we think the story is in the story, right? There's data, yes. There's measurements that we can make about how many people were trained and how many people attended and what percentage of them said that they are now using different practices in their own lives. That's important information. But I really feel that the true story of impact is in the stories that will be told. And so a big part of our evaluation report is going to be video storytelling. That is what has meaning in the community. And again, I think it's a pivot away from traditional philanthropy, which is to ask the community, what has meaning to you? And how will this final product that I, I need to present in my due diligence to the people who have invested in this work, how can we make sure that everyone is getting what they need out of that? I imagine that there's so much potential for learning of practices that are taking place in these communities. So not only are the communities able to set their own way in terms of healing, but they're also creating, and through the Catalyst Initiative, this abundance of resource of what are alternative ways that we can heal ourselves. Right. So one of the strategies that I've been using with Catalyst has been create the conditions. How do we help people understand, oh, trauma is a thing. Toxic stress is a thing. Here's how it shows up in our lives. Here's how it informs parenting. Here's how it informs educational systems. Here's how it leads to more violence in the community. Here's how it should be understood if we're talking about first responders, particularly now, right? Our healthcare system, our criminal justice system, EMTs, firefighters, nurses, healers of all kind who are being called upon now more than ever, who are stressed out now more than ever, who are absorbing a lot of the trauma from the community that they're working with, but also that many people come into this work from their own past, like as, as my story exemplifies, right? We come in with our gifts and our wounds to do that work. And if we're not really intentional about healing those wounds, we can be triggered so easily. So finding the way that we can begin to really normalize self-care as primary care, and that includes making culturally meaningful trauma healing practices available, accessible, affordable, and highly utilized. One of the successes, I think, of Catalyst in the last few years was um, a win at the Minnesota legislature where we made the argument that to reduce opioid addiction, we have to go to the pain point. You know, people become addicted to substances. They take their own lives because of their pain. It could be spiritual pain, physical pain, the confluence of all those things, moral injury. How are we helping people move through pain in a way that has meaning to them? in a way that is generative and will help give them some internal grounding. And the Minnesota legislature agreed, and they funded five pilot projects that are now wrapping up in the state of Minnesota to test non-narcotic pain management 
as an opioid prevention strategy. And we're doing the first, what I understand is the first in the country, statewide mapping of where in Minnesota are non-narcotic pain management strategies available and how can people access them. That map will live on the Department of Health website, and it'll be a great tool for someone who, a clinician who says, you know, I, I've read the studies on acupuncture and, and meditation as a pain management, but I don't know who's doing that, so let me go to the map. Oh, I can refer my patient to this resource in my community. And likewise for the consumer. I don't want to be put on an antidepressant. I want to be referred to someone who's going to help me move through my anxiety in a different way. Go to the map, find where someone is. So beginning to find ways that we can sort of nudge the systems a bit to try to be more holistic and to address the whole needs of all people. It's a big challenge, right? And there's payment reform that needs to happen and there's lots of things that need to happen. But I see good early success and more awareness within the system that they really know they need to do something different. Yeah, I see you are working on so many levels, on the community level, on the state level, working on the philanthropy level, and I imagine many more. A question I have, I think that's a bit related to what you've already been speaking about, is around the mind-body-spirit connection. You said in an article that you wrote that access to culturally meaningful mind, body, and spirit practices that are community-led is fundamental. Can you speak more about that? Yes. And it really came out of those early interviews that I did in the community, which started out by me just going to my networks, but then oh, I'm talking to this person. They're saying, you need to talk to so-and-so, and then you need to talk to my uncle and this organization over here. So the, the sort of organic networking that happened really allowed me to learn from a very diverse set of voices and experiences that I would never have known of just on my own. And what I heard over and over again, not only was the need to heal from trauma within community, but a sense that the medical systems, the mental health care systems were failing people. Black, brown, indigenous, and immigrant people repeatedly told me, we don't go to mental health clinics because they don't look like us. They don't speak our language. They don't understand our experiences. We don't want to be pathologized. We don't want to be medicated. We want access to the healing that we know in our ancient traditional ways will work. And those ways have always been present. But the dominant culture system, which has so many great values, right? I don't want to disparage that at all. It has eliminated that from our conversation. And we're simply saying we need a continuum of options. And it should include our elders. It should include faith healers. It should include curanderismo, the Bantu healing drum in our West African immigrant community. The practices that will work, that have meaning in the community, are what we need to be supporting without trying to codify them, right? There's an opportunity to move on payment reform for those practices where there is efficacy data. And there is yoga, mindfulness, meditation, therapeutic massage, and acupuncture. The Academic Consortium of Integrative Medicine has done the research. They're effective and they can and should be used and they can and should be paid for by insurance companies, Medicare, and Medicaid. But that's not the only part of the solution. We have these healers and community, many of whom are elders living on a fixed income, who are called to the work because of the deep need of their passion for their people. They're committed to helping. They're not being paid. And so they are at risk of burning out. So one of the things I'm trying to figure out is how do we support them without saying, well, you have to go through this accreditation course, you have to get this robust standard of training. Because if we do that, then we start to meddle with their ancient ways. And we should not do that. 
So that's a role that philanthropy can play. I think it's a great opportunity to invest in those healers, either within the organizations or without of the organizations, just the folks in the community doing the work. Maybe they're part of a church. Maybe they're part, they're the barber. They're the person that someone in the community who is in need is going to seek out and ask for guidance. How do we train more people in those ways, help develop curricula that are in specific languages and coming from those community leaders? There's a lot of different ways philanthropy can be a big change agent in this regard. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like the body of work that you've already done provides the foundation for other foundations or philanthropists who want to engage in this space. I certainly hope so. It's not well understood yet. I think it's, it is a body of work that is still emerging. And when I started about eight years ago, there were some people who were talking about moving beyond trauma-informed, which is a phrase that has become jargon in many ways, that we have to be informed about trauma. And, and yes, we do. We need to know about it. We need to understand it. And we need to have staff trained in it and know how to recognize it. But our reaction has been stuck in a clinical model. Oh, this person is traumatized. Let's get them to a clinical intervention. So the pivot that I'm starting to see happen is that more people recognize that trauma healing happens in many ways. It depends on the person's need and that our systems are starting to try to figure out how do we actually respond to that in a different way? How do we create the space, support the space, and then get out of the way when necessary? And here in Minneapolis, when George Floyd was murdered, the whole city reacted. And that collective trauma, particularly that the Black community expressed and were talking about and seeking resources and healing from, we have a habit of coming in when there's a crisis. Oh, let's get some resources in there to deal with that problem right now. And then going back about our business. It's not enough. It's not sufficient. We need to develop sustainable, consistent investments in the kind of healing work that people in community are telling us they need. They're telling us what they need, and we keep not listening. Yeah, and you're so right. Many sectors have the opportunity to address this. Philanthropy is particularly well-positioned to engage here. I want to talk a little bit more about some of the tensions that you just brought up. My next question is actually referring to a quote by Martin Luther King Jr., where he said that philanthropy is commendable, but it must not cause the philanthropist to overlook the circumstances of economic injustice, which make philanthropy necessary. So at a time when many in the world are more closely examining privilege and what's needed to dismantle systems of inequity, what role can philanthropy play? Massive role. It's such an important sector, and we have the opportunity to be the change agents that the community is is asking us to be. A couple of the tensions that I see are, one is we tend to be so siloed in our approaches. Oh, we fund that thing. When the problems of the world are interconnected, you cannot separate one thing out from the rest of them. So finding ways that we can actually just support the work. I mean, the Ford Foundation, I think, is doing a wonderful job in just saying this organization is doing all the work. They're on it. Fund that. Just give them the funding to do it. I think one of the challenges for philanthropy, too, is that we get stuck in our our lineal outcome evaluation models, which prevents us from investing in true primary prevention because it's so hard to measure outcomes. How do we know that that child didn't commit suicide because they learned how to breathe through their pain? 
We don't. And I think that that is a missed opportunity. So I think I hear a lot of intent, good intent and some really good new initiatives coming out of the industry, the world of philanthropy. But I think we have a long way to go to really do our own inner work, which is what Synergos is so good about. It's just helping us do our own work so that we may be the most potent change agents that we are being called upon to be. Yes, it's something we've been really focusing on the past 10 years, and it has become more and more apparent that unless we are truly connected to ourselves as we do the work, our work in the world, we can't offer our full selves to that work and have the impact that we seek. Suzanne, tell me, what is your ultimate vision for this work and the impact that you hope to achieve? My ultimate vision is that we start to see generative practices part of our social norms, part of our systemic norms, that we begin to understand our shared humanity in a different way. And I think that will help us with the polarization, just the, the constant, the rhetoric that is driven by our survival brains, our heightened emotions have begun to drive narrative, to drive policy. And we're now crafting policy out of our emotions. It's not a good way to, to govern or to lead. And I think the more we can help people recognize their own inner power to heal and be as well as they can be, we will see more compassionate people. We will see, we will see more resilient organizational cultures and we'll see better leadership. I will continue to drive this work forward as much as I can uh, in the coming years because I, I feel like I have a unique set of skills and experience leading Catalyst in the last eight years, and I'm still learning, right? I'm still learning. And, and I think the wisdom of the community will guide us if we will only listen. Suzanne, you're such a leader in this space. You've created many resources others can tap into. Where can people learn more about all of this? People can go to the Minneapolis Foundation website and click on Catalyst Initiative to learn more. Great. Suzanne, thank you so much for coming and joining and sharing the work that you're doing. I'm just so inspired and I look forward to continuing our work together. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. What I love about this conversation with Suzanne is how through her own life experience, she realized her purpose is to help others by supporting their healing and growth. Through the work she's leading at the Catalyst Foundation, new paths have been created to support culturally meaningful trauma healing practices. 